0: You're listening to the ESO Network, your station
1: for all things geek. If you've ever been curious about the real or fictional worlds, those who create or what inspires, then you'll enjoy tonight's episode of Huey Tires. The only badger show where we take life by the tail. This is Hubie Tigers. Hi all, I am your host Jared Zerf, and this is Hubie Tigers, the show about the real or fictional worlds, those you create, and what inspires. Here with me today is Brad Geiger, writer of the webcomics handbook and the accompanying site, host of Comic Labs and, of course, creator of Evilink.com, a webcomic that's been online for almost 14 years. We had a fascinating conversation about his career as an independent creative, how he chose to find his audience, and what he does now to inspire future generations. We did have a slight issue, though, at the top of the recording, so we'll be diving right into this one. I hope you enjoy.
0: ...a comic strip uh, artist, and newspapers really controlled that game. That was the only place to get that kind of content. So my goal growing up would would have been to have been a syndicated cartoonist and be published in newspapers. And that's really what got me into newspapers as a career, was that an editorial cartoonist by the name of Bill Day, who was working for the Detroit Free Press, mm-hmm. uh, gave me some advice during a uh, my senior thesis at college, which was all cartoons. And he said, hey, you know, unfortunately, if you want to be an editorial cartoonist, there's about 150 jobs in the country, <laughs> and they're all taken. And we're all waiting for somebody at one of the good newspapers
1: to die. Oh, it's a game of Highlander.
0: Yes, yes, and then when that person dies, then everybody moves up, and a spot opens up at the bottom at mm-hmm. the uh, Podunk Tribune, and that's where you uh, fight with a thousand other people to get that open job at the bottom of the rung, and then hopefully so work your way like up with
1: Disney or any of the other bastions of artistry, particularly in the in the comic illustration arena, where there, are, as you go further and up, further and further up the mountain, there are fewer places to stand.
0: Yeah. And so I went into newspapers with the idea that uh, on Bill Day's suggestion uh, that I would become a newspaper graphic artist and submit cartoons and comics to the newspaper on the side. So uh, he was very careful to warn me, don't get into the advertising section because they kind of put a wall up between newspaper and editorial for a very good reason. Certainly, and uh, and he said, "Get into the newsroom, uh, become a graphic artist." At that point, desktop publishing—this was 1991. Uh, desktop publishing was just taking off, and uh, they were uh, looking at the success of USA Today, which was a very graphic-heavy newspaper. And everybody wanted to emulate that. So being a young person with a a knowledge of how to particularly use uh, Macintosh computers and Mm -hmm. and software, I I was able to get into that world and really thrive. And for many years, uh, I did exactly that. I was a newspaper graphic artist and did cartoons and comics on the side uh, until for a a little while, uh, the newspaper side kind of took over. And I, I found I was really good at that. And for you were and, a
1: columnist as well, right?
0: Well, I, w- I did a uh, later on I did a full page comic for the Philadelphia Daily News that was basically a newspaper column. Uh, it was it talked about life in the city of Philadelphia from this perspective of many different people living in many different neighborhoods. This
1: is Fables.
0: This is Fables. Okay. Yeah. And and that was actually awarded the uh the best newspaper column in Philadelphia by the Society of Professional Journalists uh, the second year that it was running. So it, it, it very much, it was and akin nominated, to I think a for newspaper an Eisner column. as well, right? Uh, yep. And that was the year it also was nominated for an Eisner. Hmm.
1: What were your, when you were a kid, when you initially had that dream of wanting to become a comic book artist, who were your favorites? What were the greats that you wanted to emulate or to surpass?
0: My guy was Burke Breathing, who did Bloom County. I oh, yeah. was absolutely enamored with what he was doing, how he was doing it. Uh, and, and if you look at my first webcomic, Graystonian, uh, you can absolutely see that I was mm-hmm. trying to do a Bloom County style strip. It was, it, it was right along those same lines. And, uh, and he was really one of my, one of my top inspirations. Uh, like everyone else who, uh, enjoyed newspaper comics uh, i I definitely had an appreciation for Bill Watterson's Calvin and Hobbes <laughs> and uh, yes. and for Gary Larson's The Far Side. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of those I enjoyed a great deal. but for me, really, the king was Bloom County. Did you
1: looking back, do you feel that you had to go through that step of that process of emulation for a while first before you found your your own style and your own way to express the stories you wanted to tell?
0: Absolutely, and I and I think that's true of most artists. Uh, very few of us are born with a singular vision in mind. Uh, we have to learn our craft, uh, oftentimes by mimicking those things that we like and trying to get that same effect that we're seeing or that we're hearing. And uh, and and only once we start to master those things can we start to develop whatever it is that we consider our own style, our own uh, our own voices. Uh, but yeah, I, I I think that's a truism across creative. Oh, certainly. Events. I
1: yeah. I think one of my my earliest memories of reading a particular writer and going, I want to write like this, was Ray Bradbury's "There Will Come Soft Rains."
0: Yeah, and yeah.
1: It must have been eleven or twelve. It was a, a class where we were able to kind of play around and have a lot of creative projects. Yeah, you know, invest in fake stocks, create your own debate debate team, develop a planet, figure out the ecosystem on that. The, the program was unfortunately at the time called the More Able Students Program, which is a terrible name for any <laughs> exclusive or limited category of students because it immediately mm-hmm. implies the opposite as well. I think they eventually changed it to Wings, Let Your Imagination Take Flight. <laughs> but a little bit nicer, I <laughs> slightly. thought. Slightly. Yeah. But it was, a, the, it was an unusual class because you could sit down and read something like Bradbury's short stories and go, this is what words can do hmm And it's almost like a process of null hypotheses that you test one after the other. Oh, I'm not this. I'm not that. If I'm not any of these things, then I must be this other thing I've yet to define fully. Yeah.
0: Absolutely.
1: So when in your webcomic experience or in your professional webcomic career did you decide it was time to take that leap into the digital world? <laughs>
0: Well, I had been a, a newspaper graphic artist for many years at this point, going for for several years, and I it had taken me from Ohio where I started out to Philadelphia, and I I had been brought over to Philadelphia to be uh, in charge of the graphics department and to at that point In Ohio, I had been doing a lot of graphic journalism. I had been doing a lot. A lot of times they would send me out with a reporter, and the report that we would come back with would be one part story, one part graphic. And I was really becoming known for that sort of thing in newspaper circles, and they wanted me to come out and uh, build a graphics department that would do that on a grander scale in Philadelphia. And I was poised to do that, and uh, as I was about to be uh, elevated to that uh, situation, my, the management changed, uh, they had different <laughs> ideas, and I was uh, yep. kind of trapped where I was. At that point, this is 1999, and it's very clear to me, Uh, The the Internet has already uh, come onto the scene. Everyone's gotten those AOL uh, CDs in there uh, dropped (laughs) off at their doorsteps. And it's very clear to me that this uh, that that newspaper's days are numbered. I am not going to have the career at a newspaper that I thought I was going to have. And uh, and it, it, it specifically, I remember uh, saying to a newspaper editor, uh, it, "You have to understand, classified ads were a newspaper's bread and butter. Mm-hmm. They didn't make a whole lot of money selling you the newspaper. They made uh, a significant amount of money selling ads in that newspaper. But classified ads really were the bread and butter. And eBay had come on the scene and I was about to saying you to, you to editor, Yeah, yeah uh, and and I, I remember saying to an editor uh it, unless we can somehow compete with ebay we just lost a huge chunk of our revenue and of course the response i got there and this was the response i got uh for years and years from newspaper <laughs> editors was uh ah, nah, everybody's always going to want to hold a newspaper in their hand they mm. want to get that uh that feeling of holding something and uh And we know that uh, that is not how the game played out. But in 1999, when I saw Mm. that my career had stalled uh, and I was really quite upset about it, I I took one of the newspaper submissions packets that I had developed uh, a while ago for Greystone Inn. And I had sent this to the syndicates and they had uh, wisely uh, declined it. (laughs) <laughs> and I took that and put that up on a GeoCities website, if you remember GeoCities. Oh, I
1: do, GeoCities, and I think Angel Fire Rings.
0: <laughs> and so I posted that, and I had nine weeks of, of daily material. And, and, and my whole thought was that I'll show them. In other words, <laughs> uh, I, I also felt that you know I, I had gotten a bum deal getting a rejection letter from the syndicate. So I thought, I will use this GeoCities site to generate such an incredible audience in nine weeks that uh, the, the syndicates will see how wrong they are and they will sign me immediately.
1: It's and interesting that you, you had a specific time frame because there was as much content as you had at the time too.
0: Precisely. I, I, I In other words, as I was saying – um, I had no real plans past that. I figured <laughs> it would happen in nine weeks because, of course, this stuff was such compelling, original, well-crafted material. That, or at least in uh, in 1999, that's that's what I thought. It, a, it wasn't, but I don't think I would be the first creator that had <laughs> an overblown uh, sense of importance <laughs> when they're just
1: starting out. I forget who said it. On it was on my Twitter feed the other day. They said it doesn't hurt for a creative to have a slightly inflated sense of self to counteract yes. the likely plethora of things pulling them back down in a day to day basis.
0: Well, I think the real growth uh, as an artist doesn't come from uh, doing amazing work early. Oh. <laughs> it comes from knowing how little you know. And, and when you start to understand how far you've yet to go, uh, that's where the real work of creativity kicks in. It, it's great to have that initial confidence. And I, and, and I, I think it's fantastic. Confidence is a wonderful thing, but you don't get real growth until you get past the confidence, and you realize, nah, I got a lot to learn. Uh, but for me, nine weeks went by, uh, of Monday through Saturday, and I had generated just a little bit of traffic, but it was enough to whet my appetite. Mm-hmm. And on the week before the ninth week expired, I started working on week 10 and week 11, and yep. uh, I went on to post six days a week with no breaks, for years and years and years <laughs> I, I had gotten bitten by the bug and I really really loved working on comics and uh, and and so that's really what started it all was just getting that that immediate feedback every now and again mm-hmm. you'd get a comment you'd get an email you'd see your traffic going up slowly and uh, and that was it for me that, that I had the bug I wanted to I, I was a self publisher from that tenth week on.
1: It's so funny you say that. I had never intended to be a writer, although, as my folks would say, I've been writing since I was very little. Mm-hmm. And when I was finishing up one of my classes at Ithaca College, my undergrad, our writing professor said that for him, the most depressing thing in the world was talking to his students after graduation and finding out how few of them continued on. Yeah. How, you know, to see the limits of his or what, of what he could inspire when he himself had (laughs) studied Juno Diaz and George Saunders and had been filled with this whole vision of, you know, go and tell these stories that are inside of you. And so what he had said is, if you ever go to grad school, do it for the thing you love. But it's that same kind of, if you're going to commit yourself to something that crazy, the love for it is the only thing or one of the few things that will keep you going, regardless of all else. And to your point, I sat down and went, well, I can't really be a writer if I just have kind of a book or some short story ideas. I have to have more. And that summer I sat down and this whole other set of books came out of me and I went, okay, there's the difference between writing something to get tenured and writing because this is what I love and want to do. Mm -hmm. And the, the humbling moment, I think, for me, to your point, was learning the difference between short story and novel. And I thought they were bigger in some ways than they were and smaller in other ways. The were bigger definitely in terms of scope and process and all that other, but the small thing I discovered was quite the same is that my process fundamentally won't change. And trying to think that it should enforce myself to change it was so counterproductive. I ended yeah. up submitting my thesis with an appendix about 30 pages long of everything I would fix in the next version. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why I graduated. Yeah, in all honesty, that sheer admission of "I know this isn't what it should be, but I have recognized my mistakes." Absolutely. It's a. Do you find how do you connect with your characters? Do you talk to them? Do you have some some process or ritual for engaging in the story? What's your routine?
0: Uh, For me, uh, I I do comedy. I do humor. So for me, it's about the words. It's about. The the concepts. So really what I'm doing is I I, I have a, a storyline. I have a, a basic outline. And I know for every page, a certain story beat has to happen. Mm-hmm. And and I know the the personalities of each of my characters. So I know I've got to stay within certain limits. But my job on each page is to make the story beat happen in the most creative, funny, compelling way that I possibly can. So I'll write a, a first draft, and and I'll get to that place. Uh, and then I'll push one of the concepts. Uh, and, and it's something I talk about uh, in webcomics.com quite a bit, pushing mm-hmm. concepts, not letting yourself off the hook. And it usually, I find, it works really well if I'm able to do that first draft and then set it down for at least a day or two days. Yes. And and let my subconscious work on it and, and also just uh, let it fade a little bit mm-hmm. so that when I do reread it, I'm reading it somewhat fresh. And that thing that I thought was hysterical <laughs> usually isn't and and i but but there's something there that that can be worked with mm-hmm. uh so i will take that and and push the concepts exaggerate the if it's a little bit bad i'll see what happens when i make it worse <laughs> if if it's if if it's raining a little bit i'll see what happens if i make it a deluge mm-hmm. it, it, and and the more i push the concepts the the funnier the outcome tends to be. And you, uh, go ahead.
1: Do you find that limitation of having only so many frames to work with, of having to be so concise with the work frees you in some ways?
0: Absolutely. It, 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 what it does is it helps you get to the point. Mm. Uh, in other words, well, I started out as a comic strip artist, so ma- uh, my main framework was four panels, although I insisted upon the right to divide that space into as many <laughs> comics as I wanted. That's I could have sure. a one panel, I could have a two panel. I, I-, I think there were times that I-, I fit six panels into that space. Well, it's uh, almost th- like
1: having a camera. You want to be able to move it where it
0: needs to be in the moment. Exactly. And uh, but but at the same time, there, it is a finite amount of space. And as a comic strip artist, you have to get to the point quickly. Mm-hmm. It makes you a ferocious editor mm-hmm. uh, because you 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 need that space. So any word that doesn't get a, a, and, and purposefully make that point clear that you're trying to make is a word that needs to get axed immediately. <laughs> and so it makes you a, a, a bloodthirsty editor. Uh, when you have to work in that kind of space, and and I did the I did Graystonian and later on the off Evil Ink, which mm-hmm. I continue today, uh, I I did those as a comic strip for oh golly about twelve years uh, mm-hmm. straight. Uh, a, in twenty sixteen, I finally ended the strip. I I, I, I rebooted Evil Ink and it stopped be, being a strip, and I started producing it more as a comic book. And what I did was to continue publishing on the web, I would publish half-page updates, no which basically amounts to the, it, two strips, uh, eight panels. But again, I divide those up in whichever way makes the most sense. But now I find that having worked with a four-panel format for so long, the luxury Of Being able to take the equivalent (laughs) of two strips, to make my point, Mm -hmm. uh, actually made me a much, much better writer because I'm still that ferocious editor that I always was. Uh, But uh, being able to write a story that doesn't need to have a punchline every four panels – Actually makes it a much better story because that four-panel uh, punchline system is great for newspapers, right. uh, which was it was originally designed to thrive in. But when I would collect them into books, the story read very uh, haltingly. In other words, have you, if you've ever talked to a person that was uh, maybe uh, because of self-confidence issues, mm-hmm. felt the need to, to to interject a joke constantly. It was too and staccato it's and too forced. difficult yeah. to follow that story. Uh, Because they're constantly interrupting themselves by trying to make you laugh. And it's like, you know what, you'd be a perfectly wonderful person to talk to. (laughs) If you would just relax and tell your story. And, and really the work I'm doing now in Evil Ink, I think is, is way better because I've had that training of doing a comic strip. But now uh, I, 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 I relax it to the point that I can, I can let that joke happen naturally at the half page mark and at the end of the page. I update on my site in half page increments so that each one of those updates is its own freestanding reading experience uh, because I know that somebody's always coming to to my website Mm -hmm. uh, for the first time every day. Every day there's somebody coming to my website for the first time and they've got to be able to read that half page installment that's up on my site right now and get something out of it. They've got to be able to glean something out of it. they got to be entertained. It's got to be significant to even them. Uh, the well, right, has, because it's, a, it's almost time. an
1: new media res, and they have to have yeah. a sense of the character, the tone, the world this is taking place in. Mm-hmm.
0: So as a result... Uh, that's made me a better writer okay. because each each page is a significant page you will never see a, a evil ink comic where uh somebody takes three pages to wake up in the morning or somebody's <laughs> uh, uh, you've devoted an entire page of you know a child falling down a well or something are you
1: going to save that for the art house version where you send it out to 30 pages <laughs> of help. drowning
0: god help us i hope i never get to that point
1: uh <laughs> it's i my i opus. First,
0: personally i cannot stand reading stuff like that uh but but it but it's made and and perhaps that's again because of the years i spent doing a strip i don't have the patience for that Uh, so i can't write that way and i can't read that way i need something to be happening on those pages i need to be dropped into the middle of some action Mm -hmm. and i need something to happen by the end of that first page or i'm out of there
1: my playwriting teacher lee walkner he was phenomenal at making us go through line by line and he would not let us present anything without having the rest of the class read it aloud without our instruction mm-hmm. which is excruciating because you can't tell them, oh no, this emphasis, that emphasis that line. <laughs> it's whatever they interpret or get from what you've given them and right. all those missing or ugly beats or the points where the nuance doesn't come across are as naked as they could be in the daylight mm-hmm. but it was great and, because, and that's good Yeah, you, you're forced to sit and go, okay, I have to develop this or improve upon my sense of where things need to rest, where I need to allow this to kind of bloom a bit and then let that sink in. This week on Myopia Defender Childhood. Myopia Defender Childhood is so named
0: because I believe we are short-sighted on the things we watched as kids. So every week we watch a movie that one of the panelists grew up watching and see if they hold up from comedy to cartoons or to action. And for this season, the last Thursday of each month, we're doing a TV show in our myopia morning segments. We watch Saturday morning cartoons and afternoon classics. So find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. How will you stand when we put your past on trial? Myopia Defender Childhood is a member of the ESO Network and produced by Dude Letter Podcasting.
1: I'm curious why particularly superheroes and villains and taking a kind of darkly comic bent on that. What about that world appeals to you so much?
0: That was something that I always uh, was just drawn to. as a as a kid, I discovered Marvel Comics very young when a uh, uncle who was a truck driver, uh, dropped off a box of comics that had their covers ripped off because that's <laughs> that's how you would return them. Uh, right. We didn't have comic shops in the small town I grew up in, in Michigan, uh, but they were available in drugstores. And so he was a trucker. He would, he would uh, deliver these, and uh, then uh, they would rip the covers off and send them back to be pulped if they didn't sell. And he had an entire cardboard box full of uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of these. And dropped him off one day. And uh, I remember being in my room with my brother. And we immediately, like within five seconds, he decided he was a DC fan and I decided I was a Marvel <laughs> fan. And we were going through and sorting out all the comics. All the Batman went to him. All the Spider-Man went to me. And all of a sudden, my mom came rushing into the room, grabs the cardboard box and leaves with it. Oh, no. And then she comes back in, grumbling under her breath and sets it back down and and the the contents of the box had gotten very much uh lower than it had been. <laughs> it wasn't until years later that we found out that uh, Uncle Ed had was sitting out in the dining room having coffee with her and and she she said something to the effect of you know those boys are really going to love the comics and he Ooh. said yeah and wait till they get to the bottom they're going to really <laughs> love those magazines i put at the bottom <laughs> and uh, as it turns out if we if we would have been a little bit faster at sorting i might not have been the comics fan that i am i i might have gone into a completely different type <laughs> of publishing but uh, but yeah, I, that was that was my introduction to comics and uh, and, and and I loved comics. I I, I, I wanted to be uh, as a young kid, uh, even before I kind of discovered uh, Burke Breathed and Bloom County. I, I wanted to be that uh, comic book artist that did that realistic style. Uh, it just never. It was a little bit unobtainable for me, mm-hmm. and I found uh, that that I wasn't great at that, but what I could do was draw something that was more cartoony, and I I could write things that made people laugh, and I found out that that was a fantastic way for me to fit in, and especially during a lot of times as a teenager that you felt you couldn't. Uh, I found out that I could fit in by drawing these silly images that made people laugh. And, and so, uh, uh that's where my, uh, my practice kind of took me. You... But I always had that underlying love for the entire word world, the tropes, the, mm-hmm. the, the kind of unwritten rules of life that happens in a superhero world. Do you by any chance
1: recall your earliest or your first attempts at trying to emulate that world, the discovery and discovering in the process your your own comedic take on it or your own voice? I guess that first touch of it.
0: Oh yeah, I, I well, I was you know, I we we I, I filled lines uh, the, these lined notebook uh, pads that mm-hmm. my mom would get you know the spiral bounds, and and I I still have some of them that she's saved and I've got back there to kind of flip through from time to time, uh, but but. You know, I, I I filled notebook after notebook full of my own comics that were, you know, Avengers ripoffs, and <laughs> and what I found very quickly was, you know, I I these things weren't looking the way they were supposed to look. But uh, every now and again, if I threw a little punchline in there, and of course, uh, as a little sidebar, Spider-Man was always a very funny comic. There was yes. always humor in Spider-Man. He, he was always cracking wise and, 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 and the writing there was always very gleeful almost. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so uh, I, I tried to do that just as much as I had seen it done.
1: What's your take on the, I think we're in iteration three or four now in the Marvel movie universe for Spider-Man? Do you have a preference for how they've been portrayed so far?
0: Uh, no. I it, See, that's just it. Uh, when I was a kid, if you would have pulled 12-year-old Brad aside and told him that we were going to have the <laughs> plethora of Marvel movies and DC movies, but the Marvel movies, sure. especially as a young Marvel fan, this is really where my heart was. Uh, if, if you would have told 12-year-old Brad that this was coming around the corner... Uh, I would have been absolutely over the moon with with <laughs> happiness. So I I I loved the first Spider Man movie. Mm. I loved the subsequent Spider Man movies, and I loved seeing Spider Man in the Avengers movies and coming up in Infinity War. I love them all because we were starved for that in the seventies and the eighties. Right, and, we, and it was listed, we were absolutely your, your version at the bit.
1: So it's less that these are—it's less that there was a particular version you identified with, and more that this character you just wanted to enjoy any way you yeah. could.
0: Yeah, and 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 also coming from a creator's standpoint, uh, you you realize that there's more than one way to enjoy any one character. So mm-hmm. I, I, I at least from my background, I don't get all wound up over. Well, is this the right Superman? Is that the right <laughs> Superman? Uh, is this the the correct Batman? I, I There's something to love and cherish uh, from Adam West's Batman, and there's something to absolutely thrill over with Christian Bale's Batman.
1: Do you think we've entered kind of a, a cultural shift or change where comics and video games and all of these things of childhood love and adoration have become the trappings of adulthood as well, and the expectations are the... And- the belief about whether that's a good or bad thing is something we argue a lot. You know, there's the online pieces about millennial this, millennial that. Do you think there's a, any particular cause to that? Do you think... What's your take on it, I guess?
0: Uh, I don't know. I... I, I... Love to see people talking passionately about this kind of thing. So even even when they're arguing, <laughs> I, I love to see that kind of passion sure. brought to it. Uh, so uh, it, up until the point where we're saying, "Well, you're not an official fan, or right. or you're not a, a real geek," if you, unless you meet these criterias, that kind of stuff I can I can do without. Uh, but seeing two people that are arguing Marvel versus DC or, or, or to see these people who are absolutely passionate over Infinity Wars coming out, I, I think that's fantastic. And and I don't think we have to agree all the time, I, I, although I do think we have to respect one another. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not all hung up over agreeing.
1: So I am curious, though, when you said your brother and you split over DC versus Marvel, was that more about the particulars of the narrative or was that more to be different from each other?
0: Uh, probably a little bit of both. Uh, we, we we were 13 months apart, and oh, wow. we very much defined each other by being not that guy. Uh, <laughs> and it didn't help that our that uh, mom dressed us alike constantly. Oh, you my. know, it, it was it was one of those situations. We laugh about sure. it uh, now, but you know, at, at Christmas we'd fight to and 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 this was out of a family of five kids. We mm-hmm. were the the older the older two. Uh, but we would always fight to be to to unwrap a Christmas gift first, because if I unwrapped a Christmas gift and it was a blue sweater, he knew he was getting the exact same sweater <laughs> in green. <laughs> you know, So we very much tried to define ourselves by being not that guy. Uh, and also, I think he just gravitated uh, towards those stories. I think they spoke to him. He, he's he's still a big fan of, of Flash. And he would mm-hmm. he came in during that Carmine. Infantino run of the Flash in the late 70s, early eighties. And uh, you know, I, I I think uh I I think there was probably a little bit of both.
1: So when did you realize that what you were doing, this independent work of trying to prove that I'll do this on my own, I'll make it big, I don't need any of them. When did that reach a point of comfort or satisfaction or reflection where you went, I can actually have a career or a life doing this?
0: I'll let you know when that happens. <laughs> no, I, 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 think it's it's something that never. Actually, I, I'm going I'm going I'm gonna hold that to that as my actual answer. I don't think any. Uh, independent creative person. I don't think any person that works in publishing either uh, from a creative standpoint actually ever sits back and says, well, here it is. I've arrived. This is, this is me. I think we're always kind of uh, trying to get to a place that I don't think we're ever going to truly arrive at, but, uh, but but for me there were several milestones along the way that let me know that I was getting closer mm. when I self-published my first book uh and and uh Diamond Comics actually picked it up and it started appearing in uh in comic shops uh, across the country that was uh that was a big deal for me uh when I when I started to see that I was making Significant amounts of money running advertising on my website and that I could actually generate traffic on my own. that was a big milestone for me mm-hmm. when I and, and and fast forwarding when I ran my first successful Kickstarter, that was a big one. And when I started to see that people would pay for subscription content, uh, that I was doing exclusively on Patreon. Mm-hmm. That was, that was a real big one. Cause then then Patreon was the first time that I really started to become independent. Uh, in 2012, I, uh, I, I was facing a layoff, ended up taking a buyout from the daily news and I had to make this thing work. This was, this was something I'd worked 12 years for and I had to make it work. And as I was saying at the very top of the show, Patreon came around at the perfect time mm-hmm. because as Patreon was cresting, ad uh, blockers had really started to dampen ad revenue. But I had already left my day job at this point. This would have been twelve, thirteen, or I'm sorry, twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen, right. and uh, and and I was struggling big time when Patreon came around. And by the time that did come around, uh, I spent several months where it was like, all right, I can do pretty good with this thing as a tip jar, but I can see something needs to happen. And and what I finally came to the conclusion was that people want something for their money. You've got a bunch <laughs> of fans that are mm-hmm. more than happy to give you a dollar. But if you really want to make Patreon work, people want something significant, for their money, and so I experimented with a number of exclusive comics that I offered to my uh, readers until I found the one that clicked, and that's when Patreon really started to pay out for me.
1: What was that process like? I know we heard Ty Carter speak about his experimentation with how to balance out what to give for upfront, what to give as a bonus, what to give for free, and how to present that. How long did it take you in terms of experimentation to figure out what kind of comics were best? Is as- exclusives or bonus material or things that resonated with this portion of your fan base?
0: Well, it, it took me about seven months. And mm-hmm. w- during that time, I had plateaued on Patreon uh, to the tune of about $400 a month, okay. which seems as how that that was a tip jar situation. 400 a month is, was doing great. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I was thrilled that my readers were willing to support me to that level uh but i had plateaued it wasn't going any further up so i tried a number of things i tried repackaging content into mm-hmm. pdfs that people could read on their tablets and that kind kind of a yawn and i tried <laughs> a re a redoing a or relaunching when i had worked at the philadelphia daily news i did a comic that a, a weekly cartoon that accompanied a sex advice column but of course since it ran in a newspaper it had to follow certain rules and standards hmm. but it was it, but it was all about love sex romance and and that sort of thing it was fairly popular sure. i tried relaunching that it didn't get a whole uh, a big amount of excitement i had uh, spitballed a comic that was based on my kids it was an all ages comic where oh, really? evil ink kind of skewed pg13 and there was an awful lot of double entendre <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. you know, a lot of suggestive uh stuff there there uh, this on the other hand was going to be something very much going back to my newspaper syndicate roots and uh the, it, and and there was a huge yawn on that and finally what I what I did was I looked around and and saw what some other people were doing and there was a guy doing not-safe-for-work comics, and he was doing great. Mm-hmm. And so I knew him from comic conventions years past, and uh, I had his uh, his business card sitting in a stack that I keep from comic conventions and called him up, and I said, okay, tell me what you're doing. And he said, basically, it's the same thing as your webcomic except – you take all the gloves off. You can you can feature nudity. You can talk about sex. You can use foul language. It, it, it's it's just what you would consider not safe for work. Right. So I posted, HBO and
1: the Netflix appeal. The we're exactly, not bound by sponsors. Exactly.
0: In other words, what what I had been doing was NBC prompt uh, Prime Time level of mm-hmm. content, and this was HBO, and this was frankly HBO late night. <laughs> and I posted a four panel comic that was called Evil Ink After Dark. And by the end of that and just posted it as a proof of concept, went out to my blog that runs underneath my comic at uh, at my website and said, here's this thing I'm thinking about doing. And by the end of the month, my Patreon had tripled. Wow. And I have a lot of faults, but being slow on the uptake uh, is, is not particularly <laughs> one of them. That's a I saw that signal. this was something that was definitely that this my, what what actually happened, uh, Jared, is my reader said, this is what we want. Those other things are great. They're fine. This is what we want. We want a more adult evil link where you had been walking up to the line with these stories uh, and with these characters who are all drawn in a very uh, over the top, you know, mm-hmm. uh, w- uh, uh, kind of bombastic way, uh, we want to we want to go past that. And uh, I, I listen to my readers and 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 haven't looked back. It's been it's been an absolutely Why do you think amazing- they want you
1: to take that leap to the do you feel that they want something that they could relate to a bit more than beyond just the, the narrative of the superhero villain, the business they, they want the rest of life to be in there? Yeah, I think
0: that's I think that's a pretty I mean, I mean, obviously, uh, people across the board are willing to pay for more adult content in in times that they're not willing to pay for other things, right? Mm -hmm. We're we're, in fact, on the web, we're almost trained (laughs) that that that's the way it is uh, that adult content, you're more like, there's more fewer barriers to that purchase than if i just said okay my website's going behind a paywall now mm-hmm. and uh and, and so i think that's partially it and i think partially it's just that that this was kind of the obvious next step for uh, this comic that had always been a little bit racy a little bit you know a lot of double entendres mm-hmm. and this just was a was a very natural fit And, uh, and, and yeah, it's been, it's been, (laughs) it's been two years now and it has really been an eye opener for me.
1: It's, it's interesting. You hear a lot of argumentation about what should be available online. And I always think back to and I forget the name of the exact book, but it's collections of literature, usually erotic to beyond that written by famous artists and writers under pen names. And we go back to the Bronte sisters and to a lot of other really well-known authors Mm -hmm. who for the sake of needing to make money and live and feed their families, wrote other stuff on the side. That absolutely, and and to, that's,
0: you know, and that's not limited. That that there's plenty of uh, examples of that in uh, in comics as well. Uh, one of the two creators, I'm going to get the the name wrong. Uh, But uh, one of the two creators of Superman did an entire series of BDSM comics uh, and and he was the artist. So there and and you can find the book. It's called Secret Identity. Uh, (laughs) It's it's these amazing BDSM uh, illustrations drawn in a straight up Superman style. And uh and yeah, there's there's plenty of examples of that. Of course, he had to work under a pen name. I decided at a very early stage not to work under a pen name. Uh, part of that was practical. Sure. I had spent fourteen fifteen years building up a name for myself and and a following on social media. And I wanted to be able to parlay that into talking about this new project, and also I I just felt weird about being I, that 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 would almost show that 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 there, I was ashamed of this work. Right. And the the bottom line is is this work is every bit as valuable and. Uh, and, and, and every bit as meaningful as any other thing that I've done and, and if you look at the stuff that I've done, everything from fables, which was a journalism comic sure uh, to Graystone, which was kind of like a punchline comic, I've done a lot of different things. this is as uh, just it has as much value as anything else I've ever done, and I'm super proud of it so i I wanted to put my name on it. Who's interrupting my intro? Is this
1: a joke?
0: This is no joke, kid. This is the Earth Station DCU podcast.
1: No closing, anybody?
0: Sicken. We're not that kind of podcast, kid. We talk DC news, comics, movies, and television. You gotta do better than that. We reviewed Supergirl, Flash, Legends of Tomorrow, and Arrow every week. That a fact? How much do I owe you? You don't owe us anything. The podcast is free. Oh, it's just, I just heard this story in the cab, and it is all I can
1: think about. We are part of the ESO network. This is amazing. Why, thank you. And join us every week for another edition of the Earth Station DCU. Now, can we get back to the show, please? I want to touch on to something before we finish up that you're a big proponent of, which is education and mentorship. Mm -hmm. That one, how did you find yourself moving or migrating to the role of educating new generations of comic book artists, artists and other illustrators and creators of teaching people how to use platforms like Patreon? What what drove you into that role or when did you decide that you needed to take this position up?
0: Well, uh, going back to my newspaper days, uh, when I was uh, simultaneously uh, putting a web comic out and working uh, a day job at, at a newspaper, which was actually a night job, I worked uh, four to midnight. Mm. But at the during that time, I started uh, I, I started really wanting to write a book, and it it, it really culminated in. I think gosh I think I'm going all the way back to 2004 2006 uh somebody I, I, an editor contacted me they wanted me to write the uh a how-to book uh, but their artist or their writer had, had there w- there had been some kind of a problem that they couldn't complete it but the deadline was at the end of the month <laughs> and this was a god god I I forget maybe a 300 page book mm. word heavy not a lot of illustrations uh, this was uh, this was kind of like a dummies book, you know, where you it's just walls and walls of text. Mm-hmm. And uh, they wanted me to write this book in four weeks. And uh, uh, they were offering a uh, very decent pay. Uh, my first son had just been born uh, a little while ago. Uh, but luckily my mother-in-law was happy to come over and for 3 weeks she took care of the kids uh, or the or the or my son rather i holed myself up in my studio and wrote just bang this thing out over 3 weeks left the illustrations for the 4th week and if you do pick up that book, you can absolutely see that those illustrations were done
1: <laughs> in a hell of <laughs> yeah. a
0: hurry. Uh, but that kind of started the bug for me. So I started writing on my own little little snippets of something I called the Web Comics Handbook. And uh, a couple of years later, I'm at a convention and I'm um, exhibiting with uh, really good friends of mine, uh, Dave Kellett and Chris Straub. And we had done online collectives together. We were hanging out at this uh, Baltimore comic convention, and another mutual friend, Scott Kurtz, called up and said, hey, uh, Chris and I are doing this book that's going to be a how-to book. And uh, we were talking, and we want you and Dave, they say to me, we want you guys uh, to do it with us. We're going to do it, all four of us together. No problem. And this sounded like a hell of a lot of fun, although it sounded like my you know web comics handbook was kind of gonna take a back seat but mm-hmm. yeah, I only had a couple sentences written here and there
1: it <laughs> so was we'll, back there
0: so uh so it's like yeah i want to i want to do this and so we we divided up 12 chapters and we wrote it in such a way that each chapter is written by one person but then everybody else chimes in all along the way and comments as this person's writing the chapter This is a
1: conversation you,
0: yeah and, and it's like sitting in a in a bullpen or a studio. If you ever pick that book up, it, it's the the a lot of the stuff is a little outdated because Twitter hadn't happened yet, mm-hmm. Facebook had Kickstarter, certainly not Patreon. Uh, but it's a, but it's a really fun book to read. And we did that book together. It was very very successful. Went through multiple printings, and uh, and and after that book came out. Uh, I had gotten the uh, ability to publish on webcomics.com. I, I was able to use that domain name. And we started, we, we had the idea that we were going to post stuff, the four of us are authors, we were going to post stuff on webcomics.com so that uh, we could continually update the book. The because the book, once the, the ink is dry, it starts to go out of date. And so we were going to use webcomics.com to continually update this book and put fresh stuff out there. And I really caught fire with that idea. And eventually each of the other three guys got busy doing other things mm-hmm. that that they wanted to do. And, uh, and I found that I was kind of the only guy posting that. So I, I, I took over and I, I was like, okay, so this is going to be something that I do. And I challenged myself to write, uh, at that point, five days a week, something new for that site. And, <laughs> and, and now, now this is, this is where it got interesting. Okay. In 2010, I, I realized, geez, I, I, am um, of course you're not going to make money on ads because that's a very, very niche, kind of, uh, uh publishing you, 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 there's not, it didn't have huge traffic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it had dedicated traffic, but not huge traffic. And, uh, I wasn't going to be able to work the ad model and, but I, and I wanted to continue doing it, but I couldn't justify the amount of time I was putting into it. So I decided to make it a subscription website I see. and I switched that over January of 2010. And the reaction was so visceral, so hate filled. I mean, there was, there was, <laughs> I, literally, I expected to look out my window and see people with Picketing. pitchforks and, and torches. It was, uh, people wow. at that point were not ready for the idea of paying for content. Look at how far we've come from 2010 to 2018. <laughs> now now we'll where, pay for it, The idea content, of, of Patreon, uh, you know, doing micropayments uh, mm-hmm. and, and, or, or do, you know, like like many of my backers are at the ten dollar level. That's not a micropayment. That's a subscription. Certainly. And uh, and so I, I, but but you know, I weathered that storm and started writing, and uh, that. Kind of turned into my own mentorship of cartoonists and and people who want to do creative work on the web, even more broadly. There's a lot of people that get in touch and they say, "Oh, I picked up uh, uh, the How to Make Web Comics book," or I finally did end up publishing the Web Comics Handbook uh, after a few years of doing webcomics.com. I realized, hey, I've already written the book. All I got to do is take this stuff and collect it and and organize it, and mm-hmm. I've got. I got the book. So I finally did end up doing the webcomics handbook, but I hear all the time from people who aren't cartoonists who said, oh, I, I I got this book just for what it says about social media, or I got this book just about what it says about crowdfunding, because even though I'm not a cartoonist, this is exactly the stuff that I need to understand. And so that that's been a big part of the past several years of my life is webcomics.com writing books that that share information and, and insight for people who are trying to do creative things on the web. I've even taught a few semesters at uh, Hushin College School of Art here in Philadelphia where I where I t- teach basically entrepreneurship for artists where I walk in and say, listen, here's the deal. It's not 1975 anymore. Most of you are not going to go out and get jobs after graduation. And I'm sorry you made them <laughs> like you, but it's time that we get this straight right off the bat. And if you do, you're gonna get laid off within a couple of years. <laughs> you know? So you are going to need to know how to make money happen. You're gonna more than likely you're gonna go out and become a freelancer. Mm -hmm. And if not a freelancer, you're going to become someone who owns their own small business of one person. And you're going to need to know how to do business for yourself. That's the reality that you're going into. You're not going to go out and get a job in a company's art department uh, because those jobs have all been cut and farmed out to freelancers, because they don't have to pay them more benefits. They can just uh, freelance that stuff out and make you a contract employee. So that's the bad news. It is that this world that you've been told by the older people in your life doesn't exist anymore. The good news is you can do it. And we're going to talk about how to make that happen.
1: Do you see a point in your career where you would want to shift more completely into this role or do you find that bug of wanting to make comics persist with you every day?
0: Oh, I think, I, I think I'm going to end up doing both at the same time, right. uh, mainly because I, what happens is I learn so much about comics from teaching comics mm-hmm. and I learned so much that needs to be taught and, and and new things that needs to be covered by doing comics it's kind of like a a, a symbiotic relationship I uh I, I each of them it, being a teacher makes me a better comic artist being a comic artist makes me a better teacher so I, I don't think I'd ever want to just do one specifically at at, at one time I I think I like doing them both
1: no, I mean, I asked because when I was in grad school, I did both at the same time, often in the same day. And I found it was as much as it was a crucible that need to take what you were learning or take what you had struggled through and figure out how to distill that for someone else so that their journey was a bit easier.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and even more to the point, your, uh, in trying to explain that thing to another person, you found that you got a much better understanding of it yourself. Certainly. In other words, I un- I know what I think about, for example, publish uh, or doing marketing and promotion on social media. I know what I think, but when I have to actually write that out for a post on webcomics.com dot com or a chapter in the WebComics Handbook, uh, now I've got to uh, assume somebody with w- with a much more limited uh, background on mm-hmm. that story. And now I've got to kind of explain things. And the act of explaining that forces you to understand that topic even more than you thought you did.
1: Or, as you pointed earlier, in some cases you realize that you didn't understand certain things as well as you thought you did before.
0: Absolutely. And, and you uncover little pockets uh, of uh, topic that needs to be drilled down even further. And in other words, I've been doing a lot of talking lately on social media on webcomics.com. And I realized after, and, I, and I've and i been doing this, I do uh, four posts a week now instead of five. Five, I'll do uh, a post from the archive that I'll make free. You don't have to have a subscription to read mm-hmm. it as a promotional thing. But I've been doing this site since 2010. And uh, I realized last week that I, I, I talk about social media an awful lot because it's such a powerful way for an independent artist to promote and market their work. You you cannot deny, uh, you can't ignore it. it it's, it's huge in, in your outreach if you're going to do this as an independent. And I realized last week I'd never talked about hashtags. And there's, <laughs> there's a whole, a, a, and I've done oh, yeah. two posts already that's like, okay, let's just specifically talk about hashtags why do we use them how can we use them better what you know what are the assumptions you've been making about using them what what's the cargo cult stuff that you're doing that you do it just because everybody does it mm-hmm. and and it's been some of the best uh, topics uh, of discussion that I've had in a long time and it's it, it's one of those things that it's always been there uh, but then you you realize, oh, geez, there's this whole facet of this conversation that is untouched. Oh, sure. And we need to drill down on
1: that. There remember a client asked me, he was, I think, he was working on a business his father had invented the product for. And this is a 40-plus-year-old business. The guy used to work as a journalist for Consumer Reports. He had a lot of background in educating and talking about products and researching and interviewing people who use them. And when mm-hmm. he said, why would I want to use a hashtag? And I had to sit for a moment and go. exactly that's a great question what I eventually came around to was it's a wonderful way to follow a conversation across multiple media and platforms I don't have to you know I can collate everything surrounding this topic with just that tag and get other people to do it as well so that when I search for it, I can get all that stuff sorted together. I can nuance it with additional tags. I can, and so I think Stephen Colbert was great about this, add sub comments or subtext to what I'm saying with them. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, when you start looking at it less about as an artifact of what we could do before more as a new tool or a new approach to doing what we used to do. And right. I always keep in mind the other end of this, which was, I was a conference I was at probably, God, six, seven years ago. It was on content as the new king and sponsored content particularly. And all these people were talking about, oh, sponsored content, this, sponsored content, that. If you get the relationships right, the placement. And this guy with big burly mutton chops, (laughs) old-time ad executive, goes, sounds like PR to me. Well, he goes, still sounds like PR. (laughs) And half the audience went, thank you. (laughs) Because yeah, the, the fundamentals in some senses don't change. It's still relationship building. I think, and you can probably speak to this as well. The expectations can shift.
0: Oh sure, but but at the heart of it, social media and is is a conversation, and the the key to doing social media well, in my opinion, mm-hmm. is something that I call the three C's: content, commercial, and curation. And if you're doing those three C's well. Uh, you're going to have a feed that somebody wants to follow content is content it's your thoughts it's your ideas it's something that you're willing to share if you're a, a, a creator it's putting that creation in the social media feed not a link to it back to your site unless you're making significant money from ad sales and you need to do that mm-hmm. uh, but it's sharing that content on social media. Commercial, that's when you start talking about your Patreon and your Kickstarter. And curation is when you're retweeting or sharing other people's stuff. Uh, If you do all of those things frequently and well, you've got a a social media feed that somebody wants to follow. If it's all one, if it's all commercial, if it's all you talking about your Kickstarter, Mm -hmm. nonstop, post after post, not only is nobody new going to start following you, you're going to start to lose the people that you had. If it's all content, that's great, but it doesn't do you any good because you're never mentioning your Patreon. <laughs> you're never mentioning that new book. You're never mentioning a comic convention appearance or a trade show appearance. Uh, and curation is a fantastic way of, of having lots of content in your feed that you didn't have to create, but uh, but there it is, and you're sharing it, and it's not uh, commercial. So, uh, so, And if you're choosing it wisely, if you're choosing it well, that person that's your follower doesn't care what it, that it didn't come from you. They just are like, oh, man, I'm glad I'm following this person. He or she just found me this neat thing mm-hmm. to read or this neat part of my day, even if it's just 140 characters or 280. And you can use that curation not only for that, but to help other people and encourage them. I I, I do this all the time. If I see somebody doing a Kickstarter, man, I'll retweet that in a heartbeat. If I think that it's something that uh, gels well with my followers and I know that they appreciate that because this past month when I'm doing my Kickstarter, I see those retweets coming back in bucketfuls mm-hmm. because they remembered that I retweeted them and they're more than happy to reciprocate that. It's, it's that whole idea of putting good out into the world uh, and getting good back. Uh, uh, curation in social media is all about that kind of stuff. And, uh, and it just makes your feed that much better. It's, 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 you need it. Because you need lots of content in that social media to encourage people to follow you, and what's easier than seeing something interesting and clicking retweet or share? Uh, the the favorites that doesn't do shit. Don't 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 bother with the favorites. Nobody cares if you put a heart on it. You retweet that. That has meaning. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Same thing on Facebook. You share it. You find a way to get that out to more people. That's has value. Uh, putting a heart on it, that, that I, I got no time for that. It's, it's, it's empty. It's wasted time. You curate on your site. Now you're doing something interesting.
1: You bring up an interesting point. I know we have to finish up soon, but I was working financial in financial services for many years as a consultant. And one of the big pieces of research that came out at the time was this shift away from people going to certified experts to ask for advice and instead asking their friends, their family, people mm-hmm. they knew who they trusted, whose opinion not only mattered to them, but who also either shared their interest or had their best interest in mind first. And I think in that same sense with your creators or the people you follow saying, you like me, I like this stuff. We both probably like this other thing I'm about to show you right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Most of the stuff I stumbled upon in probably the past four or five years comes from someone whose opinion and of various content I trust. And I'll go, okay, we may not like everything together, but I know you and I appreciate these things, so I'll be more willing to give that a shot.
0: Right. Absolutely. And and, and that's something that you can use to your advantage.
1: So I do want to touch upon your Kickstarter. It's at fourteen or fifteen thousand dollars now, a couple of days left to go. We
0: just, it, 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 we just crossed over 14,000. Uh, it will end on Wednesday at 1130 Eastern Daylight Time, and you can check it out at newevilbook.com.
1: It was awesome having you on the show. I Thank you so much. I enjoy talking to creators, as you know, and I love being able to share those conversations with other people because it's fun for me, and sharing my fun with other people is fun.
0: <laughs> yes. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's curation, isn't it?
1: Certainly in my teacup to come full circle <laughs> anything you want to touch upon or plug for the audience any gigs any stuff you want to let them know about before we go
0: uh well other than the kickstarter which you can see the, uh, the this is the reboot of evil inc so it, it was that uh that uh, new approach of doing a comic book instead of a comics trip that's for the first time being collected into a book, and I'm really excited about that. And if you want to see the exclusive comics I'm doing on Patreon, it's patreon.com slash Geiger. Geiger is the weird spelling, G-U-I-G-A-R. It's just like guitar, but with a G instead of a T.
1: (laughs) That is a good (laughs) mnemonic.
0: I've been doing this for a
1: while, Jared. (laughs) (laughs) How many years did it take you to figure that one out? Yeah, well,
0: after after so many times of people t- putting the wrong spelling of it in, uh, I I had to do something because man, that was a killer.
1: Uh, my favorite I received back when I was applying to college a number of letters back. My favorite was Carnegie Mellon. They sent a letter addressed to Tard Gurf, <laughs> and I said I I have no desire to go to you now.
0: <laughs> wow, yeah, they didn't even try on that one, did no. they? No,
1: <laughs> I mean my handwriting is not pretty. I know this, but. <laughs> I typed up stuff for a reason.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Jeez. Oh,
1: man. So we'll make sure we include links to your site, your books, uh, to your podcast, Comic Labs.
0: Fantastic. I appreciate
1: it. Yeah. Just make sure you send me anything else you want to include in there. And people can follow you at Geiger on Twitter.
0: Yep. At Geiger on Twitter. Brad Geiger, uh, same spelling, on Facebook. and, And Instagram. I've even been doing Instagram, which has flummoxed me for years. I'm at Brad Geiger on Instagram.
1: You know, I I almost want to have you back on for another episode later on just to talk about working with social media.
0: Yeah, it's a fascinating concept. I I could talk about social media for hours and hours.
1: It might be fun, actually, if we have a third person on and we can workshop their profile then.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Cool. So that's it for the show. If you like what you hear, you can leave us a review on Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. Or show your support on Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash JaredSurf. And, of course, if you have a tale of your own to share, you can write to us at feedusyourtales at com. That's Tigers of the Y. See you all next time. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the
0: crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the T Public store which can all be found at
1: www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.